supply chain issues, what can you not find anymore, like electric transformers, wasn't expecting that to be called in, um, and, and the lack of a labor force. And more frighteningly, the lack of a skilled labor force. I'd imagine if you're in the business of building transformers, it's not something that uh, you, you've got to have some skill and some know-how to build a transformer. I don't think it's just push a button and watch it mold itself like a Sinclair plastic dinosaur in the old days. Remember those machines? 803-0930. How many of us as kids were fascinated by dinosaurs because of the old Sinclair plastic molding dino machines? I still have mine. Ha, the head fell off of one, but oh well. 803-0930. Problem is, I was just playing with them this morning. 803-0930, star 930, 1-800-616-WBEN. i got to take pictures of those things. Let's go to Cuba. Uh-huh. Nice, warm, and sunny, but it's the other Cuba in New York. Here is uh, Mark in Cuba on WBEN. Hello. Hey, David. No, um, this is this is Tom. David is on from 10 until 2. Oh, okay, Tom. I'm sorry. I'm the hey, good-looking one, just so you know. Okay, great. Yeah, I just... I was a lineman for 30 years, and I worked for a, a Rochester Gas and Electric. And I'm telling you right now, people got to wake up and smell the coffee because this is going to change everything. And you're not talking just that. I heard the fellow earlier talk about the 200-amp uh, minimum service. Mm -hmm. We're talking about 320 amps of self-contained meter. And last time, I, I just wired a house for a uh, friend of mine, and... There was a backlog for just those meter cabinets of six months, and they were $1,500 per meter cabinet. Good Lord. So who, this Kathy Hochul deal, she doesn't have a clue. She's got to wake up and smell the coffee. I mean, you're, and I worked for, I was a line foreman for almost 12 years, and you got to change the conductors on the pole, the transformers. It's going to be a daunting task, plus, let me ask you this, Tom. Um, who owns the utility companies now? It's not domestically owned. They're all foreign owned. Between National Grid and NYSEG, Spain owns uh, Rochester Gas Electric and NYSEG. It's called Iberdrola. And then they made a company named Avon Grid. And it's the same thing with uh, National Grid. Isn't, isn't Holland also involved or the Netherlands, uh, one of those places? Well, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure about that, but I thought um, National Grid was owned by uh, a company based out of London or England. And so they're, all that money that you're going to be paying on your bill is going out of the country. So that's going to be a whole different issue. I mean, where's this money go? I'm talking to people right now that they haven't made – any kind of dispensation or stuff for these people going totally electric. And I heard a kilowatt hour is going to be 18 cents a kilowatt hour right now. And it's basically around 12. So you can, there's a lot more to this than just what Kathy Hochul says, because she hasn't got a clue. And I, and I've installed these generators and I don't know what those people are going to do, but I haven't heard the issue on propane yet. And I hope it's, because most people have their generators running on propane. Hmm. So. Well, I mean, uh, you mentioned London and England. National Grid uh, operates in both the UK and the US, according to their website. Yeah. I think uh, the parent company, if you want to look, I, I've always been told 
Now, this is by the rumor mill that they've always been owned by England. England is their base company, and that's where they come out of. And same thing with Avon Grid and Iberdrola for the other two companies. So they're a foreign entity. We're going to pay more and more money. And I don't know how that rolls around as, as far as somebody's going to have to, federal government's going to have to, these companies are going to want money to change the infrastructure, either changing the primary voltage or they're going to have to reconduct everything and put transformers. And just like that fellow said, there's a shortage of a lot of electrical stuff. Meter cabinets, a 200-amp um, service is going to be a small service, like I say. And I just wanted to make those comments so people can start doing their homework because this can't just be done overnight. This, this grid's been put in for over 100 years all these poles and wires and stuff, it's, it's not an easy task just to change everything over. No, sir. Uh, no, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark in Cuba, another lineman calling in. Um, th- see, this this is all, like, very, very interesting. And, frankly, that's one of the concerns I have for you guys, well, and myself, is the, uh, the whole upgrading the home for all of the new needs. Uh, because how many of you, do you live in a house that was built in the 1900s, the 1910s, the 1920s? My house is from 1927. Do you think in 1927 um, they were terribly, they, they knew about uh, high-def TVs and all of the demands on the electricity that would be made in the future? I'm sure they planned a little bit ahead, but they had no way of knowing, and they certainly had no way of anticipating that, uh, hey, someday, Natural gas is going to be the enemy of the state, and we're all going to use electric appliances. And I don't know about you, but have you noticed your electric bill is absolutely through the ceiling lately? Like I said, I don't usually pay attention to those things. If it's something that I need, I buy it, and I don't even look sometimes because I need it. What choice do I have? I I need electricity. Uh, But I I happen to look at it. And I happened to look at the historicals, and I was stunned by how much more electricity is costing. And what's really frustrating for us in western New York is we've got this big waterfall in Niagara County. You might have heard of it. It's called Niagara Falls. And why do we pay so much for electricity when it's made in Buffalo's backyard? Especially, What do you think in Niagara Falls? You've got to go crazy when you get your electric bill. Like, it's our thing. Let's go to traffic on News Radio 930 WBEN. Hey, if you wait a few hundred million years, though, Niagara Falls will be in Tonawanda. Uh, talking about this uh, natural gas situation and so much interest out there. Today's show, though, has been all male. I feel like I'm in a locker room with a bunch of guys. Ladies, you need electricity, too. I know you need electricities. I mean, batteries are great. But at the end of the day, you need electricity. I realize the implications of what I just said. Uh, let's go to Paul in Snyder on WBEN. Hello, Paul. Good afternoon, Tom. Yes, sir. Yeah, brother. Listen, if it helps, I can identify as Paula. Um, you know what? My preferred pronoun is your royal highness. So we can go back and forth with that, Paula. <laughs> All right, brother. Um, yeah. So that one caller that was uh, uh, giving the definition of the ownership of the utilities uh, being uh, in uh, outside the United States. So, you know, real quick into my head pops this thought, so I said I'd call. 
when you look at the big picture, um, how much of this is just the uh, globalist mindset and how and then what I would counterbalance that thought with is just the disdain for the thought of make America great again. What do you think? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know what, we need to be aware that there is a globalist agenda out there. There is a desire to do away with countries and let's have one world government. There is a proclaimed desire by the elites to reset capitalism, reset the economy, uh, the whole idea of you will own nothing and be happy. Um, I do believe that the American way of life is under a vicious, multi-pronged assault, and any nationalist country is under uh, a um, an assault by the forces of globalism. Obviously, the United States is the most prominent target, but there is something... I fear there is something far deeper going on here than just what we've been talking about. I mean, in, yeah. in Switzerland, you can see all the elites in Switzerland uh, flying in on multiple private jets to complain about climate change. They really cared about exactly. climate change. They'd walk to Switzerland. Exactly. And I could see um, this whole agenda with the electric thing being uh, – focused in on like some type of building project where we're all paying for it with our taxes and that like I've heard people saying how are people going to be able to afford this privately and be forced into some kind of a uh, huge uh, construction project of uh, like project type living in apartments because I know that's what they want people not to own anything so you know, when you start connecting them kind of dots, I know that might be a tinfoil hat theory thing, but... You know you know what? Um, I would have said yes five years ago, but anymore, I don't put anything past anybody. I have grave fears about the future of the United States. I have a grave fear about the future of freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to live where you want, to drive where you want to go. I think all of these things are connected. I don't know who Oz is, though. I don't know who's behind the curtain um, orchestrating everything. But there, there clearly is something going on that is very, very big, tectonic, and our it's almost like uh, our lives. The pandemic ended our lives as we knew them. And it's even silly, well, not silly, it's even inconvenient or dangerous things like your medicine not being available at the pharmacy and they don't know when it's going to come in. That never used to happen. Transformers, you can't buy them right now. There's an, a year backlog. That never used to happen. Not to my knowledge. I never bought a Transformer, but obviously it was news to that longtime lineman. So thank you, Paul and Snyder. I appreciate it. Um, you know, it, it's weird. I made a joke last night that maybe the paranoid people were right all along um, because there are some uh, – seriously, the, the, there is – nothing seems normal anymore. I mean, in Atlanta, you've got Antifa protesters calling for violence against police, and that's tolerated. You know, you're not supposed to be able to incite people to violence. That's supposed to be a, uh, a criminal offense. Freedom of speech has limits, and that's one of those limits. I can't incite a riot on this show. I mean, we just had uh, all the talk about the so-called insurrection of January the 6th, and we've got insurrection in Atlanta, but nobody wants to call it insurrection. 
and it, it's it's pretty sick and it's pretty pathetic. And I'm sorry, but uh, convincing little boys that they're really little girls, um, it, it's dysmorphic and it's not. That's not that's not normal. I'm sorry, it isn't normal. Well, we have to judge COVID by science, but we don't judge chromosomes. Uh, wait a minute. You either are or you are not a male or a female. And by the way, when I say that, don't misinterpret that. I don't hate anybody, and I don't think you ought to hate anybody either. But I think that the uh, this, this whole, it's like a weird agenda that, frankly, is beyond me. And I'm going to tell you something. A lot of homosexuals I know, they don't understand it either. I mean, whatever happened to the good old days when you were just gay uh, or bi? Those were the good old days. Alec Baldwin, never thought you'd hear this day, never thought you'd live to see this, right? But uh, Alec Baldwin uh, faces charges in the fatal shooting of that uh, cinematographer, uh, actor, and producer, Alec Baldwin being charged with involuntary manslaughter in the deadly 2021 shooting on the set of the movie Rust. It's a uh, Western movie and uh, low budget, actually, at that. Prosecutors in New Mexico have made the announcement. Now, in addition to Alec Baldwin facing charges, the armorer, uh, person in charge of the uh, armaments on set, her name is Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, is also being charged with involuntary manslaughter. Baldwin, uh, Baldwin was holding a gun during a rehearsal when the gun went off. And as a result, Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer, was killed. And here is what they said in New Mexico. After a thorough review of the evidence and the laws of the state of New Mexico, I've determined that there is sufficient evidence to file criminal charges against Alec Baldwin and other members of the Rust film crew. That is the DA, Mary Carmack Altvies, in a statement released this morning. On my watch, no one is above the law and everyone deserves justice. Uh, Hutchins, the cinematographer, uh, was hit by a gunshot. They were setting up for a scene. Uh, this took place uh, in the outskirts of Santa Fe back in October of 2021, so over a year ago. And Baldwin was pointing a pistol at Hutchins. The gun went off, killed her and wounded the director, a gentleman by the name of uh, Joel uh, Sousa. So obviously uh, very uh, interesting news um, from New Mexico on that uh, situation with uh, Alec Baldwin. You know, uh, Alec Baldwin didn't really do himself any favors. Um, You know, he uh, was seen shortly after the shooting. Remember when he was uh, touring Vermont and New Hampshire? right after the shooting of, of Miss Hutchins. Um, remember the interviews he did and why he spoke with the police uh, without legal counsel, I uh, I don't know. But, I mean, he basically got locked into a story. And one of the important elements here is uh, Baldwin says, well, I never, I never touched the trigger. Well, the FBI examined the Colt 45 that was involved in the shooting, 
and basically they said there's no way this gun just went off in the manner that was described by Mr. Baldwin. So joining us right now on WBEN, we have local attorney and distinguished nationally at that, Paul Cambria. Paul, thanks very much for being with us. What is your um, big picture view of everything we've seen happening today with Alec Baldwin? Well, I'm surprised they charged him, and I think it's going to be very difficult for them to get a conviction. I mean, he's sitting there with the prop master telling him he has a cold gun. I mean, you know, that means something in the movie business. And uh, whether it went off accidentally or whether he pulled the trigger will obviously be where this is going to, you know, the rubber will meet the road when it comes to that. But apparently in the test by the FBI, you know, originally it wouldn't fire on its own, then eventually it did. So, you know, who knows? But I, I just don't see a jury convicting this guy under these circumstances. What does the prosecution in New Mexico have to prove in order to win a conviction against Alec Baldwin? Well, it, it appears from what I read on this charge that uh, they have to prove sort of gross negligence, if you will, that, uh, you know, there was uh, such a reckless disregard for safety that it rises to the level of a crime. So a, rec a reckless disregard in legalese, uh, can you translate that for the rest of us? Well, basically, it's there's a certain standard of care that everybody would be following, especially in the movie business involving props like guns, and that they grossly deviated from this standard of care. Uh, to me, if I were defending him, I would say, well, the prop master, who's the person in charge of all of this, um, you know, I trust that person that they loaded the gun correctly, not with a live round. And when they told me it was cold, that meant to me that it was safe. And uh, then again, you know, the thing that we really don't know is if he's going to claim it was some kind of accidental firing as opposed to it was part of the movie, pointed it at her and shot. And that latter part's going to be the problem. Are there are there any precedents um, that have happened in the movie business which would lead you to uh, to know or to, to have an idea of how the prosecution is going to go after this and how the defense is going to go after it? I know that uh, Brandon Lee died on set because a fragment of a bullet um, was lodged in the weapon that was pointed at him. The trigger of a blank was pulled, and that generated sufficient propulsion for the projectile to leave the weapon and kill Brandon Lee. And also uh, an actor by the name of John Eric Hexum back in the 80s was messing around with a, uh, a blank gun on set, put it to his temple, pulled the trigger, and he died, not understanding that yeah, a blank right. could cause fatal injuries. Right. Well, and then I think there was the Twilight Zone thing with the helicopter. Yes. And I do think there were, there were prosecutions there, actually. But, uh, you know, there is a standard of care, obviously. And it's, it's like anything else. In, in everyday life, if I did something that was reckless and it, it wound up killing someone or it was negligent and it wound up killing someone, I could be criminally responsible. So it's going to be the same sort of thing, but in the context of the movie business. And, and with the fact that a professional prop master handed him a gun and said, it's cold. I mean, 
you know, that means it's it's legal and it's not lethal. And, I, you know, that's where his defense is. Uh, by the way, you're, you're absolutely right. Five people uh, on Twilight Zone, the movie, including the uh, co-director John Landis, uh, faced involuntary manslaughter charges uh, back uh, during that situation uh, in which uh, Vic Morrow and uh, two child actors uh, were killed by the helicopter. Uh, terrible, terrible situation. Yeah, and these are the same charges, involuntary manslaughter. So the... Um, the, the prosecution, I mean, if you were prosecuting this case, you've told us how you would defend it. If, if you were prosecuting it, uh, what kind of arguments would you be making to prove that Alex ba uh, Alec Baldwin had culpability in this, uh, in this shooting death? Well, the first thing is whether or not this gun was pointed at in her direction and in the assistant director, director's direction and fired as part of the movie. If it wasn't part of the movie and he just put it up and pulled the trigger, that's not good. Now, that would get a person convicted. If it was part of the movie, and again, the prop master said that it's cold, if I'm the prosecutor, I have to say, well, there's an additional duty on the part of the person with the gun in their hand to check the gun to make sure that it's not loaded. And I think that's what they're saying here. I read a couple of articles where they said that, you know, Baldwin himself should have checked the gun. And, you know, people in the movie business will be able to tell you whether that's the protocol or not. I know in the movie that I was in, I had a gun to shoot. And the prop master was as careful as anybody could be, you know, looked it all over, handed it to me, took it back, looked at it again and handed it back to me. And then said, and when you do pull the trigger with the blanks, don't point it at anyone. And so, you know, there was a lot of professional uh, care, uh, caution in that situation. Wow. Well, now, if, if that is the standard, doesn't that kind of put Alec Baldwin in hot water? Yeah, it, it would, except that, you know, there's going to be Number one, they're going to be people who like Alec Baldwin. They know that he wouldn't do something like this on purpose and that, uh, you know, it was a fluke situation. And, and they'll rely on the prop master's statements that it's a cold gun. Uh, that's where the defense has to be. I think the tricky part is did he fire it as part of the movie or did he just pull the trigger? Well, they they were in they were in a rehearsal. I mean, so I I would I mean I would well, certainly call a rehearsal part of the movie. I I totally agree with you, and I don't know whether or not she was the target in that rehearsal, whether she was supposed to be the target. In other words, that it was pointed at a you know somebody who's behind the cameras. That's um, one of the issues. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And, you know, the other thing I haven't heard um, is whether this incident was captured um, on video. Yeah, um, on video. I, I, I have not. I've not. Have you heard anything about that? Well, no. And, and I would say if it wasn't captured on video, that would probably be bad because it would mean that somebody was being shot at who wasn't supposed to be shot at because. If they were supposed to be, it would have been on video in the rehearsal. And that's one of the issues here. I think that Baldwin claimed that the gun accidentally went off as opposed to him pulling the trigger. And because how else would you explain shooting someone who's not in the movie? 
Yeah, that this whole thing is bizarre. I mean, Paul, you just um, told us a very interesting story about uh, being in a movie, being handed a uh, a gun by the armorer, the prop master, and I've heard two different stories about this. I've also heard, I mean, about the the protocol. I've also heard um, a, a Hollywood guy who's been involved in hundreds of movies that not only is it incumbent on the prop master or the armorer to check the firearm, but the actor who receives the firearm is also allegedly, according to this person, supposed to check it to make sure there's nothing uh, in the chamber, in a revolver, uh, in the cylinder in a revolver, or uh, nothing that is possibly live uh, in a semi-automatic. True. And in my situation, he pointed out to me, uh, you know, what the load was, that it was a blank. And at one point, I said, oh, yeah, and I just moved the gun slightly uh, toward him. And immediately grabbed my hand and said, Mr. Cambria, please don't point the gun at anyone. And at the time we actually had the shooting of the gun during the movie, the, the object of the shooting was, you know, slightly to the left of the actual shooting. I mean, there was a lot of caution taken. Man, that, that's uh, pretty incredible. Um, in the Cabrini movie, in which I and about 3,000 other people were extras, uh, we, didn't have any, uh, we didn't have any gunshots uh, at all, at least not when I was there. Um, hold on, Paul Cambria is with us, talking about the charges against uh, Alec Baldwin and uh, how he would proceed defending it, how he'd proceed prosecuting it, what some of the key and salient issues are. Uh, Paul Cambria is with us. We're talking about the uh, Alec Baldwin charges uh, that have been filed in New Mexico. And, uh, Paul, in a situation like this, if the prosecution can prove, using that FBI report on the Colt 45, that Alec Baldwin lied to the authorities in New Mexico are jurors allowed to consider that? Is that even allowed to be introduced? Oh, yeah, there's no question. If, uh, uh, you know, if there's a statement made by the defendant, those statements are admissible. And so if he made statements in an interview, and my guess is he will testify in his own defense, probably. He seems like that sort of fellow. Um, and if he said something contrary previously, they'll confront him with it. You know, what I also don't understand about Alec Baldwin uh, is being the veteran actor that he is and presumably um, being somewhat savvy in the ways of the world, why he wasn't on the phone with somebody like you, Paul Cambria, yeah. before he even talked to the authorities because yeah. all they were going to do was try to lock him into a story. Yeah, who knows? I mean, we don't know if that if he talked to a lawyer or not. I mean, if he did, I certainly would have said to him, wait till I get there. And uh, you and I, you, Alec and I will have a conversation. And then I'll talk to the authorities. And maybe it would have had a different maybe today's story would have been a little bit different for Alec Baldwin uh, had he done that. Yeah, it's very possible. Now, there's a lot of situations on the federal side, it's even worse because on the federal side, you don't have to be sworn in or anything. All you have to do is make a false statement to a federal agent, and it's the equivalent of perjury. So it's not a matter of swearing to tell the truth or being you know, notarized or something. It's a crime to simply say something false. 
to a federal agent. Yeah, you, you and I have talked about that before. And didn't you say it was like a year in prison is a possibility? Oh, it's five-year prison thing. Huh. It's, a, it's a five-year hit, but and you see it a lot in cases. And then, you know, I mean, whatever your charges are, the toughest part is going to be, I didn't say that. And the FBI agents get up and say, oh, yes, you did. Uh, that that's uh, obviously good. That's that's good information to have in one's uh, back uh, back pocket, yeah. just just yeah. in case. Yeah. Um, hey, yeah. uh, a, a a situation like this involving charges uh, like this, um, how long would any trial last? Oh God, it depends. Uh, you know how many experts they're going to have. Experts, people are going to talk about what the protocol is on a on a set. Uh, and he'll probably have character people and others there. He might even have other actors who say that, you know, the, the protocol is such that we rely on the prop master, you know, that kind of thing. Who knows? I mean, there'll be a lot of twists and turns here. Is there still a chance he could take a plea? Uh, wow. I don't see that. I mean, there's always a chance, but Baldwin doesn't seem to be that sort of person. He's a stand-up person. And, you know, he was obviously distraught over all of this. And I don't think it was just distraught because he might be in trouble. I think, you know, he was obviously very upset that somebody lost their life as a result of his actions. I don't see it. I think he'll be he'll be on trial. But, you know, his his tour of uh, Vermont, not that long after the uh, shooting, the fatal shooting of the cinematographer, that was not a good look to me. Like, hey, I just killed a woman, but I'm gonna gonna go for some Ben and Jerry's. It just it didn't that yeah. that, that that was a little awkward to say the least. Yeah, that's what happens. Uh, you know, sometimes they just don't understand how that gets portrayed and how it could hurt you as time goes on. Well, uh, we will discuss the. Uh, Fatty Arbuckle case uh, at some point yeah. in in the future, and Virginia Rap, may she rest in peace. Uh, Paul Cambria, right. thank now you. Now wait, do you know where she's buried? Um, you're going to probably say someplace that I would least think of. Um, I, I, see, well. the the fact that you asked me that makes me want to say Buffalo, but I'll get that wrong. Where where is she buried? No, not at all. She's buried at Hollywood Forever. Cemetery in Santa Monica Boulevard. Oh, a lot of very famous people are are buried there. You know where Joe Valachi's you know where Joe Valachi's buried? Yeah, probably in a landfill. No, Niagara Falls. Oh, too funny. Yeah, seriously. He apparently was was pen pals with a woman in Niagara Falls and she took custody of his remains and uh, had him planted. Fantastic. See, Paul, you you never know what you're gonna learn on this show. Thanks very much for joining us, Paul. Appreciate it. You got it, though. Uh, Paul Cambria joining us on News Radio 930 WBEN. Uh, Fatty Arbuckle was a movie comedian uh, back in the 1920s. He was throwing a wild party and allegedly got on top of uh, this actress named Virginia Rapp. Her bladder ruptured and she died afterward. And basically, he went through a bunch of trials. The final trial acquitted him, and the jury actually issued an apology for everything Fatty Arbuckle had been put through. Um, they they were just over the top saying, look, this guy got screwed by the media, uh, and his career never recovered. He died a broken man. Fatty Arbuckle. You can look that up at some point if you're ever looking for something to do.